Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am blessed today to have my third appearance <laughs> on a podcast in a year. Love it. With my good friend, Charlie Mann. Charlie, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Dude, I'm always excited to talk with you. I'm literally in my head going, oh, yeah, I know he was on uh, my podcast uh, just a few months ago, but it's time to get him back on. Like, I always love these conversations because I feel like we just produce some really good you can use this right away. This is going to get applied within the next week to your law firm type of stuff. And also, it's just fun to talk with people who are so energized about this space of like supporting law firm owners, helping law firms succeed. Like it's just always a delight. Thanks, Charlie. It's mutual. <laughs> I wanted to say, speaking of energized and doing stuff, since we last spoke on your podcast, which I believe was back in May, you've been doing quite a lot of stuff. So would you mind filling the listeners in on uh, what you've been up to in the last six months or so? Yeah. So since Law Firm Alchemy officially launched on July 1st, which by the way, as we're recording this, Jan, I'll let you know that you are currently in the top three most listened episodes of the newly launched podcast of the relaunch They Don't Teach Us in Law School podcast. So people should go and listen to that episode, give Jan the boost, keep him climbing the charts. Um, but yeah, so relaunched the podcast, started Law Firm Alchemy, Started out with one-on-one -on -one coaching for law firm owners. I ended up filling up those books entirely by November 1st and uh, recently launched a mastermind program called Genesis for 15 firm owners. And uh, you know, by the time that this is coming out, it'll probably be close to filled, maybe not filled all the way just yet, maybe one or two spots open if people are interested. And you know, spending a lot of time collaborating with folks like you, Jan, on how to best support firm owners and really continue to help folks transition more and more into that entrepreneurial identity. That's a big thing for me, that entrepreneur identity for law firm owners, leveraging new tools like AI. But the biggest discussion point that's going on regarding that transition to the entrepreneurship side of everything is, and we've spoken a little bit about it, is the private capital equation that everyone is paying more and more attention to. And so as a firm owner, if you're listening to this, you probably are aware that there's private capital that is going to enter the law firm market increasingly. I understand, you know, Arizona being the biggest pilot program of this, but we're starting to see some equity opportunities uh, crop up in other places, including some very clever stuff that actually one of my clients has uh, put together. Won't talk about it on mic, but uh, very smart stuff that he's doing. And how important it is to really focus on being a great entrepreneur, systems developer, marketer, like the high level stuff for owning a law firm. So I'm really enjoying seeing how the market is evolving and what it means going forward for both the entrepreneurial lawyers and those of us who are in the support space who are thinking about, okay, how can we play an even bigger role in all of this? Yeah, a lot to go off of on that. And I want to actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. The last podcast that I ended up recording, which will be out a little bit before this, basically we had Brooke Lively on and she was talking about uh, some nice. stuff. Yeah, awesome, awesome person. Uh, awesome gal to ch chat about, about this. But I'm conducting a bit of a straw poll. So as far as if you wanted to do a bet on when we, you know, as far as the timelines for firms who might be considering an exit or at least want to be prepared for one of these, uh, the wave when it comes. If you had to bet, what would you put your range for for when the wave's hitting? Wave For when the wave is hitting? Uh, okay, so if we're talking about like 
kind of a a mass awareness on this. Because right now, even the Arizona thing gets forgotten by a lot of people. So let's, I'll define the wave as a third of states now have this opportunity available. I've got that like calendar up in front of me and I'm, I'm putting a little pin in one of the places. I'm putting it in right in between 2028 and 2029. That's where I'm I'm placing my pin. And I think depending on what happens with the AI invasion of the law firm space, I might move that pin earlier in 2028 to see that crest, just because the adoption of that will fundamentally change the way that lawyers operate and the desire and need for scale that almost forces the conversation of private capital getting involved. Okay, that's really interesting. So what do you see as the connection between AI adoption and the private capital adoption? It's uh, if we've got the AI leverage point and the development of systems on all of that, what I start to see increasingly is the ability for the law to be more and like the law, it's such a broad term, but the law to be uh, more accessible to people and a lot of companies that want to get involved in it being more accessible. And I think what we see at that point is private equities first round of investment will be in companies that are developing the next legal software programs like Do Not Pay, right? That's one of the few that's out there that recently they won a lawsuit against Do Not Pay. Um, I don't know the details of it right off the top of my head, but it's a case of an AI system that can be used by your average, quote unquote, average consumer uh, in order to achieve a legal result. It can also be used as a support system for lawyers. And there's more and more of these coming out. So you're going to see this first wave of investment start hitting that space. Legal has obviously had kind of a big, a big wall or a big moat, depending on maybe both of them, right? It's a gigantic castle uh, around it for a long time. But you start seeing consumer pressure of act, wanting better access to legal services, uh, potentially. I mean, I think that as soon as people start raising awareness of like what legal services could be available to people, there will be a greater demand of accessibility. And when that demand starts to come up, you now have the more disruptive Silicon Valley type looking at it and going, yeah, I don't necessarily have, quote unquote, permission from any bar association to do this, but uh, few people ever disrupt anything by asking permission. And so they will just build it. That will create some level of demand. And then private equity is going to start looking at actual law firms and say, like, look, you want to buttress yourself against an AI invasion, a complete AI replacement. If you let private capital into the profession overall, that will give them an incentive to get involved with law firms and not try and completely overwrite law firms. They'll still see it as a big potential profit center because that is the way that a lot of practices are constructed. So that would be the kind of free market interaction that I see driving a opening of maybe not the floodgates right away, but going from a trickle to like the hose is actually turned on in bringing money into the ecosystem. Okay, that's fascinating. I definitely didn't see that connection, but it kind of reminds me of how a lot of stuff looks like it's playing out. And I guess this is still happening state by state. I don't follow it too closely, but like if you look like five or 10 years ago, all this stuff that was coming around, cannabis stuff. So it's just like, right. <laughs> just waiting yeah. at the lines for the, the moment that this stuff is going to be available statewide or federal. Or like, and it's, you know, people are developing the stuff and that's attracting pretty, pretty attractive investments. Oh, absolutely. And depending on where the politics go on all of it, we could see. Uh, some pushback against what the rules of the unlicensed practice of law really look like, uh, and maybe 
uh, some challenges against those when AI gets involved, especially since we now know that the AI can pass a bar exam. Where do we start drawing the line in terms of it doesn't make it capable of practicing the law? There, there are just some big questions to be answered. And obviously, the rate of change in AI is it's unbelievable. This is today what websites were in like the mid late 90s. Like this is a cresting technology that it's barely getting started. Actually, a buddy of mine uh, who's an estate planning attorney, uh, Owen, uh, he talked recently on LinkedIn about, as a reminder, this is the very beginning. The AI tools that you see now are the dumbest version of those tools that you will ever see. And think about how powerful they are today. Yeah. And if we kind of extrapolate to what things look like, so if we have the potential for this access to legal kind of like lower level stuff too, it definitely still leaves room for some folks that are going to be doing the higher level, you know, human required litigation. 100%. Stuff. But, um, you know, let's talk about how people are going to go ahead and integrate this into, you know, I don't know, let's, let's call it a mid-sized, relatively successful offer. So the, what I see already happening is you have like the co-counsel program from Case Text, where they are starting to examine large batches of records, for example, or, you know, large batches of information to look for trends, things that may uh, that it can currently draw out and recognize as usable for the case. We're going to see more and more of those enhancing a small law firm's ability to play at, say, a medium law firm or even large law firm level. And in the large law firms, we could potentially see, and this is all about speed of movement. Nice part, by the way, everyone who's listening to this who's a small law firm, and by small, let's define it as like under $10 million per year in revenue, which I realize for the folks who are you know, doing half a million dollars per year, they're going, wait, that's still small? $10 million is small? It's kind of a semantics debate. Usually when I say small law firm, I oftentimes mean like three or $5 million or less, but let's call it $10 million or less. Those firms, you have such a, an agility advantage in all of this, the ability to take in, test and adopt some of these systems early on in your growth journey, as opposed to, you know, someone trying to take a cruise ship of a law firm and get it to turn, you know, 180 degrees almost in order to change the way that it operates in terms of what are associates responsible for? What are paralegals responsible for? I don't know exactly where that is leading and which kind of which category is going to get quote unquote punished the most, which one's going to see a dearth of job availability after that. But we will see those positions end up being heavily affected because now you have to level up your skill set. So if I'm an attorney right now who is building my firm or I'm inside of another firm and I'm doing a lot of the really rote work, like I'm doing very rudimentary tasks, very rudimentary drafting, I'm, I'm on edge about all of that because that is obviously the first stuff to go. And it's already an area that is price sensitive, price conscious. And that's going to be like, I will say this as myself. If I have the opportunity to invest in law firms, that will be one of the first spaces I look at and go, okay, how can I leverage technology to smooth out this process, get more consistent results? And instead of perhaps needing the extra paralegal or the extra associate in this case, can I replace one of them with an AI system? And can I find attorneys who can be good at handling prompts? And by the way, in the future, that term prompts, I believe, Jan, will kind of go away because we're looking for natural language conversation with AI in the future. It's prompts now. It will instead be great conversations in the future. And that, that will, again, open up a, another set of accessibility to some of these tools. 
Yeah. So assuming that you're not like at the level where you're in paralegal associate entry, it seems like the opportunity for somebody who's in the position of owning a law firm is just a lot more leverage, a lot more scale for a lot less overhead. Oh, 100%. That's exactly what it is. Like, that's why you know, be really excited about it. it. If you are an owner, this is a massive opportunity. I mean, I've already shown some owners how to build their own GPTs to take care of copywriting, to take care of intake. Like we, we've shown how it can be used in the intake process or creating templates for simple things like demand letters that it used to be difficult to train people up on. Now you can create GPTs to handle all of that for you. You know, that's super interesting because I think we're also crossing a little bit over from the service side of things into like the marketing side of things. And I yeah. mean, I guess you know, there's probably nothing this isn't going to touch by the time like we're done with the, this AI integration stuff. But um, let's talk yeah. more about that. So I guess first to, to back up to, I'll kind of say, you know, what I know about this and then maybe try to put my, my mind into the listener a little bit. So I remember the, the announcement. I don't know if it was for, I don't know if it was for GPT-5. And they announced it for GPT-4, if it was in GPT-4 the whole time. But basically going to the point where you're referencing a giant database of information that was scraped on the internet some time ago to basically having your own source of data to reference to get the same kind of outcomes that you'd be able to get from ChatGPT or OpenAI.com yep. right now. So what's, uh, you know, let's kind of talk a little bit more about how this is working and like, you know, what people, what's the advantage of going to this as opposed to just going to OpenAI.com or whatever? Yeah, so OpenAI, when you use the basic ChatGPT uh, protocol, and the difference here between ChatGPT and a GPT, uh, the GPT is built on uh, the OpenAI infrastructure on its LLM or large language or language learning model or large language model. I'm, I'm messing up my acronyms here. That's fine. It's one of those two. It's an LLM. We know that much. But if we have the distinction there is ChatGPT is built originally as a chatbot. Now, in building it that way, they actually constructed to take so many different inputs and create so many different outputs. What a GPT is, is taking the established framework of the overall ChatGPT and giving it some boundaries. So that way you can drive a specific outcome, which is great because one of the hardest things about having an open playground like ChatGPT is a boundaryless playground is hard to comprehend the possibilities from it. Boundaries enable creativity. This is their true, true value. So right now, if a lot of firm owners are going, I don't know what AI can do, because the answer is it can do almost anything. It is limited only by your imagination. Obviously, there are certain limits, but even in limits like, oh, you know, it can't have relationships with other human beings. That's being tested and, and pushed against at this point. Like the limits are truly your imagination. But what a GPT does is, so for example, I create a GPT that I can use with my, with my podcast and, you know, hey, I'll send it over to you, Jan, as well, where you can take the transcript of the podcast and all that this GPT does is you copy and paste your transcript into the podcast of the podcast, or you can upload a Word file of it to it. And it will spit back out a list of highlights from the podcast and way better than what you get from like a Riverside or a Buzzsprout or anything like that, because I've trained it to think like a copywriter and to produce it as like Dan Kennedy, Gary Halbert style teaser copy, in addition to a few action items that come out of it. So now I've taken the entirety of ChatGPT, limited it down to doing this one thing extremely well and doing this output the same way over and over and over again. And all I need is a transcript from the podcast. You can do this on that very narrow area, or you can spread it out. Another GPT that I created, Jan, and this is really cool. And I think like every business owner should do this. 
Create a GPT that is designed entirely to produce images that relate to your brand style. So I love comic books and I really love like old 1950s illustrations in comic books. So I have a chat, a GPT that's called Vintage Heroes. And all it does is it takes whatever is prompted and spits back out a 1950s comic book style image of that prompt. That's all that it does. But it's perfect for me because that relates to my brand. So if you're really modern in aesthetic, you could adjust it that way. But now, literally, this thing's been worth like $10,000 plus to me because of the number of images I've generated. I can do it in a heartbeat and I use it almost every single day. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So I think that's completely different than what I thought, because I was just thinking about limiting a database of text, but like you've already introduced two completely different media forms in doing this. So you're basically creating an AI thing for a different thing. Like I know it almost feels like sort of a Zapier on steroids to me. It kind of is. Yeah, that's like that is an interesting way to describe it. And I'm sure that at some point Zapier is going to actually I wonder if Zapier I think Zapier like has some plugin maybe for uh, GPT. But actually, laugh, that, yeah, that, I was doing this earlier. Like they actually have something that's when you're like you, you click the new one. It's literally like, hey, what are you trying to do? And I'm, I'm still uh, going to be old school for the next little bit. But yeah, I'm sure it's not long before that ends up getting better than anything I could come up with. Right. Which is which is fantastic. It's fantastic. I will admit, I obviously probably sound like a super booster of this really enthusiastic. Let me say from the humanity side of things. Look, I'm not walking around doing the dumb thing of saying, oh, it's like uh, it's uh, we're making Skynet here. But I'm also not saying it either. <laughs> There's uh, all of this stuff represents a double edged sword. But at this point, there is a cats out of the bag scenario. And if you are an entrepreneurial law firm owner, I understand perhaps the desire to stand on principle and say, oh, you know, I'm not going to deal with this stuff. It's bad for humanity, yada, yada, yada. Well, I personally think that we really only have one of two choices, which is you can bury your head in the sand or you can try and forge this into something that is practical and useful and figure out solutions that actually create new opportunities as opposed to take new opportunities. So even though I alluded to potentially replacing paralegals and associates, at the same time, we're going to be able to help more people overall. And we may be hiring a brand new type of person who doesn't need high levels of legal expertise. Instead, maybe writers who feel like they don't have as many opportunities as they used to, all of a sudden, good writers who are curious, who are maybe like the investigative journalists of today who are uh, being pushed out of work, will have brand new work because they may be some of the greatest prompt engineers you could ever hire. And all of a sudden, we're, we're repurposing a class of people who have lost access to good opportunities and giving them brand new opportunities. I mean, this is the cycle of the free market. Love it or hate it, it exists. Yeah, 100%. Like, this is kind of one of those things. Um, I forgot what I was reading, but there was this book about, I don't know, it was some story about like NASA or something. But it was crazy because when they used to do the flight calculations, there was a job that was called calculator. That was a person. For it. It's like, right? You know, unfortunately, oh, those, yeah, like those people don't have a job doing what they used to do. But, you know, it's not like they, you know, walked into the ocean after that the, the calculator got invented. That's um, right. But I think it's a lot of this is like kind of the application of a lot of the thinking that even if you've been using human elements to this, it's like the same thing. It's like, you know, you as the firm owner probably shouldn't be taking out the garbage or, you know, giving uh, mineral water to the people as they walk into your office. And like when you kind of open your mind to the possibilities for it's all about, you know, going back to that, you know, French definition of entrepreneurship, taking something from an area of low potential to high potential in terms of you know productivity. Oh, yeah. 
And again, I think it gives people tremendous leverage if they want to take part of it. But um, yeah, it's like, you know, the, the biggest downside, and I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine. So he actually is, uh, he works in private equity. I won't get more specific than that. But he was just basically like, you know, they use it a crazy amount in the, the other firm that he works with. And he's like, well, the real downside, unfortunately, at the moment is going to be, it's it's kind of tough to have that apprentice level work. Like, so instead of the associate who would be doing all this stuff and learning in the way, it's like, you know, that's a GPT now and that person has to find another way. So I'm sure things are going to come out in the meantime, but again, to the firm owner, yeah. I'm assuming <laughs> it's more of those listening to this podcast than people in the other spaces. I think it's a huge opportunity. Oh my gosh. Uh, it, it will represent a lot of significant change over the next few years. Again, like going back to the start of this conversation, when you wrap private capital into it, this, this, is, this should be very exciting for the average human being who would desire access to better legal services and at times at a more affordable price. Now, there is the, the classic idea of if you are a firm owner or an attorney thinking about, well, then what do I do? It's still nearly impossible. And this will be the thing that lasts the longest. And maybe it lasts forever. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe we're headed to the singularity. Maybe we're not. I don't know. Let's throw out big existential questions some other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if we, we're still headed in the direction of your ability to, to be a human, obviously. And God, that sounds so pretentious when I say it out loud. But your yeah. ability to connect with people is still the most valuable skill and asset that you can develop as a law firm owner, the skill to communicate with people about what they need, what they desire, and how their life can be transformed by working with your law firm just becomes that much more valuable. The people who are students of marketing, who become greater students of systems development, who become great communicators and relationship builders, this will give you a big edge. And I think that's exciting because we've seen over the last you know, about 15, 16 years, what felt like a transition away from building good relationships and focusing on referrals and some of like the simple ground game of marketing that did transition predominantly into a digital marketing space. And now if the digital marketing space is, is like getting more and more solved in some ways with AI entering yada yada, then which it's, it's not, you need, let me tell everyone right now, you need to work with a good digital marketer. Don't go at your own on digital marketing. It's, it's tough out there. But that just means that you need to refocus on your ground game as a referral marketer, relationship builder, and core communicator of your firm's message. That will allow you to not just survive, but absolutely dominate. Yeah, well, that's actually a really, really good opportunity to segue because there's something I've been thinking about a little bit too. And it, it came up when you were talking about the importance of this stuff. I think there's been a movement, I think like anything else in complex market dynamic, you just have different things that become your rare, valuable aspect as time goes on. And those things will shift. So if it was mm. relationships before attorneys were allowed to advertise, it shifted to advertising. I think it's swinging back, like you were saying. But I think there's something that I see the best firms that we're working with treating a lot more differently. And it's the amount of value that they're able to extract from their budget based on what they're doing differently when it comes time to getting somebody in the room with them. So my thoughts, again, so my, my big question for you is like, you know, what are you seeing as far as the, you know, your clients that have the best handle of it? Like, what are they doing differently? So the ones who are really killing it, and this is the thing that we're going to focus on collectively with, with my clients, uh, in Genesis, et cetera, the ones who are killing it have exceptional habits that they are keeping in their marketing as opposed to just being just being tactical about everything. They have really, really great habits. I'll use it 
I'll use chess as an example. So I, I, I played chess a little bit as a kid, and then I really got into it about a year and a half ago, and I've been steadily climbing my ELO rating, and I've officially said things that people don't know about and don't necessarily care about. So we'll talk more. <laughs> I'm following you, Trout. We're good. We're good. <laughs> At least one. Uh, yeah. yeah. Excellent. So in chess, one of the things that you need to develop early on is you need to understand the openings really well in chess. If you don't understand the core principles and openings, you will struggle bus hard on chess. And that is the equivalent of creating great habits in marketing. Now, there's another side of chess, which is tickle chess. Here's the problem. If you don't understand why certain openings function in a certain way or the core principles of chess, even if you learn little clever tactics, you learn a little bit of the end game piece, et cetera, you will get crushed. Now, here's the thing. The end games, when there are fewer pieces on the board, there are fewer calculations to do, those are really fun things to learn. It's not necessarily as fun to learn the 86 variants of playing the Sicilian defense on black, right? That's, that's not as exciting to a lot of people. But the great chess players do that. And it's like building great habits in marketing. If you're someone who produces over and over again, let's say it's video content and you're producing video content over and over again, you're showing up, you're looking at your statistics, you're looking at what the market is giving you within the video space, you're responding to that and you're using it as a consistent uh, feedback loop for yourself and keeping that habit going forward. It's like working out and keeping track of your workouts and your progression in order to develop the next cycle for yourself. You will dominate in your marketplace as opposed to most marketers, which, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this, Jan, they kind of like test something for three to six weeks. They go, eh, not for me. And then all of a sudden they're moving on to the next thing and they repeat that. That's the only habit that they keep is moving on to the next thing. And that's not great. Yeah, 100%. And like, it's kind of interesting coming on off of the AI conversation as well, too, because there's absolutely some gains to be had in being able to, to switch tracks to something that has super high potential. But mm -hmm. I kind of see this pattern in some people that are a little less successful that, I mean, honestly, it's usually not people that are hiring us. It's people that are opting in for our ads every six to 18 months. And I ask them where they've been. It's usually not anywhere <laughs> different than they were last time we spoke. But it's That's like, right. you know, there's a combination of, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, you want to be climbing the right ladder, but like you got to climb the frigging ladder. Like if you just do the you know the first couple things you're never really going to get to the past that first measurable thing of outcome but it's like the people who truly become great in anything not only are they doing the work they're showing up they're iterating they're eventually doing that to the point where they're developing their own style and that's eventually what people can't compete with right that's a really good point developing your own style develop i mean right now the term and even though my buddy Tony Albrecht, who's awesome, who, who talks about it a lot, he talks about it in a way that I can stomach. It's still not my favorite term, which is personal brand. That, that's become, you know, one of those hot button topics recently. But it has validity to it. It really does. And it even plays into the discussion that we've been having here about how do you stay relevant in a world of AI, automation, et cetera. It is by creating connective tissue with people and developing a message that doesn't look like what AI would churn out for your message, right? It's taking the things that are uniquely you and that ranges from, quite frankly, what are your hobbies and interests all the way down to when you voice an opinion about something, how do you tend to voice that opinion? Is it a, you're, you're sort of the, the pugnacious pugilist in the way that you come out and really fight for an opinion? I think about, uh, I think his name's Jonathan Pollard. I believe he's an employment lawyer and he, he kind of has that pugilistic streak. Or are you more of a soft touch kind of person, a little bit more lovey-dovey? And both of those are valid. They're just going to connect at times with different audiences. And by the way, different audiences means different types of clients, different types of referral sources. But here's the good news. 
you're going to connect with someone. You're not just pushing kind of random words out. You're not trying to placate the market with all these dry, drab phrases, these, you know, these these simple versions of a marketing message that go nowhere. When you actually say something, you will be heard. Too many people, too many law firm owners often get stuck in trying to say not nothing, but it ends up being nothing because it's just right down the middle and no one listens to right down the middle that i could go into a political rant no one listens to right down the middle but we're, we're, we're not going to go there yan yan i'm yeah. steering us away from that <laughs> <laughs> no, that's funny well i was gonna say too because it's interesting because i mean yeah it's like uh, i think another way i've heard that phrase is like you know if you appeal to everyone you appeal to no one but I, i've got kind of a philosophical question for you so as, as far as when it comes out to being yourself out there in the market do you think there's a pig for every barn in the sense that if you want to put out your your message unapologetically there's always going to be somebody who resonates it or do you think it makes sense to tailor your message to the kind of client you're looking for the kind of market you're serving or that kind of thing that's an awesome question and depending what market you're in will change how much of yourself you might be in front of potential clients let's be real about that mm-hmm. this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be yourself you will be your best advocate. But if you show up with someone who is going through, about to go through a divorce, say, and you just, you kind of bring out that pugilistic side and it feels like it's targeted at the client, obviously that's going to be a problem, even if that's your natural state of being. Now, and look, I look at some of the other sides where there are people who their personal politics are not always perfectly aligned with the practice area that they're involved in. And you do need to think about your end market. But here's my guarantee to everyone. There is a significant portion of you that is relatable to the client, that will connect with the client. You can always find a way to be you in trying to connect with people to build that I don't even like using the term brand because I'm so much of a direct marketer that sometimes yeah. brand has a weird connotation for me. But it is that developing your brand, but that's really your voice, your style, your connective tissue. That's the phrase I like the most that really brings people together. So I look at the end of the day, I think I've talked myself into, yeah, I think that there is a pig for every barn. I, I think I've talked myself into that here, Jan. Okay, cool. Gotcha. Yeah. So maybe, you know, I'll, I'll get my um, Chairman Mao uh, Zoom background when I'm, I'm focusing on my tenant side <laughs> stuff. And then maybe, you know, go for some. <laughs> I'll, go right. for, yes, yeah. Yeah. I'll go for the Ann Rand one when I'm doing my, <laughs> my uh, landlord style work. No, I'm kidding. But no, but I think it's also one of those things too, because it's like, you know, it's it's also kind of when you're answering that, I think I might have phrased the question in kind of a black and white way. But it's like, you know, the truth is, I think we all contain multitudes, right? So it's not about like yes. necessarily being yourself versus not being yourself or being authentic or inauthentic. It's like you have kind of, you know, what side do you decide to present? What will generally serve you? And kind of like tagging onto that a little bit too. It's like, look, if you're looking for the smoke, right? If you want to, if you want to be taking contentious litigation, you know, that's the that's the guy you need to bring on a video. That's a gal you need to bring on a video. Um, if yep. you want to be doing, you know, the mediation, no fault, that kind of stuff too, then you know, maybe soften the tone a little bit. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It, it, and hopefully, what you're doing as a law firm owner is you are trying to align your interests, your style with the right type of law and the right way to practice. I think what you just talked about there, Jan, the difference between, say, litigation and mediation, and we could use family law in in context there, because I've worked with uh, firm owners who are, they will only do mediation in family law, like that is their niche. And so they do have a very different tone. And they did it because they didn't want to be involved in the more contentious back and forth. They didn't want to come across as like, we're aggressive type of marketing. It's we're for the, you know, the solution oriented individual who 
really does want to come up with a mutually awesome outcome here without wasting a bunch of money fighting each other and sending letters back and forth, right? And so that is the way that they position themselves because it works with their vibe. And if you do find yourself having to change who you are, in order to connect with your market, that's probably not a long-lived business strategy. You're either going to have to change yourself or change your market. And it's, uh, I'd advise that you change the market. Yeah, that's really, and you can always change the market. And it's also kind of interesting too, when you see these things, it's like, I wonder how much of that is is sort of like the selection bias, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, I feel like there's a, there's a bulldog in every state, right? (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. But that's awesome. I'll also say this too, kind of bring things full circle to the uniqueness and potentially having a situation where, you know, there is this, this huge invasion of, of capital and this kind of stuff too. Like you got to realize that having a unique position within the market is what really positions you as a monopoly. If you do want to be milk toast and apply to everybody, and then it's like, you know, you're one of five firms that might be considered for acquisition. But if you're the person for uh, a market or a particular consumer segment, that becomes a lot more valuable. That's defensible. And, you know, regardless of whether you want to sell or take on investment or whatever, it puts you on better footing. See, here's one of the things I love about recording a podcast with you, Jan, is inevitably at some point you're going to use a word that I love and like almost no one else uses it. And you said milk toast and that I love that word <laughs> so much. Which one it was. <laughs> <laughs> I love. So I used to do like a presentation that focused around don't do milk toast marketing uh, because yeah. that is it, it kind of comes off the, the Dan Kennedy ism of the number one marketing sin. Don't be boring. That's that's among all things that you can do in marketing. Just don't be boring. Any reaction is often better than no reaction because at least with a reaction, you have some level of attention and now you have the opportunity to make your case. Yeah. So we got to make our case. We got to take advantage of what's going on in the market today with AI. And there's a lot of other things we have to do in the next four to five years. We'll have you down for the straw poll <laughs> before the capital comes up, before the barbarians are at the gates. This has been an awesome conversation as always, Charlie. As far as um, people who listen to this, they're vibing with it. What's, uh, what's a good next step for anyone listening? Yeah. So depending on where we're at, uh, maybe there's space available in the Genesis Mastermind program. And if you're interested in that, and it, it general good starting point is obviously lawfirmalchemy.com. You can see information on the various programs and what's available right now. But I'll more specifically direct people to a referral marketing playbook that I developed for law firm owners because it plays into both creating uh, referral marketing, which you know takes you uh, away from being completely digital dependent. Now, just so everyone knows, I am a huge believer in digital marketing. But like we were talking about earlier, Jan, it's about layering those strategies and hire a great digital team, apply yourself to the referral marketing. Everyone will be happier if you're doing doing that combo. Uh, so if you're interested in a referral marketing playbook that also focuses on habits, you just need to keep three pretty simple habits. And you know, my promise to you is it's a half million dollar referral marketing playbook. If you go to lawfirmalchemy.com slash referrals, lawfirmalchemy.com slash referrals, uh, you can get that playbook completely free. It will tell you exactly how to do it. It's the whole kit and caboodle for you. Oh, rock and roll. That's awesome, Charlie. You probably might see Yannick on 
<laughs> Excellent. Fake too soon. Um, it's super funny because we actually had a podcast not too long ago. Um, I was kind of commenting on this. It's like, I feel like it's such an additive thing. It's very rare. I found there's there's people who kick ass at referrals and kind of in spite of marketing. And there's people who mm. kind of abandon it because their marketing is so good. But it's like when you can combine those two things, it's like you're getting, uh, you know, the extra free throw or the extra, you know, uh, extra point. Extra What's this? Point. Yeah, That's the sports ball yeah. one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the big sticks anyway. But yeah, it's like you're getting extra stuff with everything you have. And then at the end of the day, like, you know, that's return on investment. Uh, I got to keep hammering this because uh, there's a bunch of bozos who've been telling people it's not their responsibility. But yeah, the return on investments, <laughs> that's down to your process. So um, yep. look, it's fun. We all love marketing. A lot of us like tinkering with operations, but you can't forget about the last of the triangle, which is the finances side. And I'm seeing that get pushed more and more by people like you, by a friend of mine, Leah Miller, about observing that financial data and getting really dialed in on whether it's ROI or ROAS, you know, whatever data points that you're using, those are so valuable. And by the way, private capital, they're going to be looking at those data points. That's how they make their buy-sell judgments. Yeah. No, and it's a thing too, because, you know, you can learn this uh, language when it's facing you in a term sheet, or you can learn it right now and then move to the point where it's going to be attractive. Amen. Yeah. Okay, so this has been awesome. So yeah, Charlie, pleasure as always. Um, it's always great to have you on. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.